This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. to outsource memory to the internet and that you know that's a very strange thing to do we don't really even think about that but you know we we don't keep as much stuff in our heads as our as our parents and grandparents but because we know it's out there somewhere and we can google it and search it but that's very odd that we've decided that memory is something we can put in a mechanical archive and we know it's there but we our heads are kind of increasingly empty whereas what it meant to be educated or reflective or just interesting was to have you know fields of memory that you could wander into in order to tell interesting stories or jokes or whatever. Can we remake ourselves through memory? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. On this week's show, Basque writer and poet Harkites Canyo discusses what it is to remember and whether we have a right to forget. And his all writing unconscious memoir, British philosopher Simon Critchley talks Hegel, the history of memory and the perils of total recall. This is a show about mind and psyche, translation and understanding, the philosophical imagination and some major letting go. But first, a painful story about Spain's dirty war against Basque separatist group ETA. In October 1983, two young Basque boys, Okian Lassa and Oxy Zambala, were kidnapped in the town of Bayonne in southwestern France by non-uniformed members of the Spanish police. The boys were secretly taken to San Sebastian, interrogated and tortured, and then transferred to Alicante, where they were forced to dig their own graves and then shot dead. This execution was one of many performed by members of the GAL, the anti-Basque death squads, comprising of members of Spanish security forces and hard assassins during the dirty war against ETA in the early 1980s. To date, the GAL have been implicated in over 28 murders of alleged ETA activists. In 1994, the Spanish government's involvement in this divisive and bloody chapter in Basque and Spanish history was publicly acknowledged with a high-profile judicial inquiry and later a Supreme Court trial which convicted two senior government ministers. The outcome of the Las and Zambala case proved highly controversial and painful both for Spain and the Basque country. Two members of the Spanish police and a civil governor were found guilty of the boys' gruesome murder and sentenced to a total of 365 years in prison. They were released a few years later. The Lassa and Zambala scandal is one of the very few cases of the dirty war accepted by the Spanish court. Harkites Canio is a Basque writer, poet, legal scholar and journalist. Born in San Sebastian, Harkites has published several collections of short stories and poetry, as well as the novels Bella Luna Jazz and Pasaya Blues. His latest crime novel, Twist, is loosely based on some of the events of this disturbing case. Twist was originally written in Basque and translated into Spanish later, and subsequently won the Euskadi Prize for Literature and the prestigious Premio de la Critica from the Association of Spanish Literary Critics, cementing Harkite's reputation as one of the finest writing talents working in the Basque and Spanish language today. Incidentally, Harkites has also translated into Basque works by Hanif Qureshi, Paul Oster and Allen Ginsberg. 
Well, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Harkites at the Irish Spanish Latin American Literary Festival organised by the Instituto Cervantes in Dublin a few months ago. I asked Harkites to describe Basque literature. Well, concerning to Basque literature, first thing to say is that there are two different language communities, meaning that uh, half of the population doesn't uh, speak Basque, doesn't even understand Basque. So this is funny feeling about living in exile sometimes because I write in Basque. So when you write in Basque, you feel that you live in exile in some ways in your own home. So you're at home, but your language community is small and you have some advantages from disadvantages being small. So you're linguistically displaced in a sort of way. We have our literary world. Uh, it is small. We have uh, this Basque public uh, radio and television, daily newspaper entirely in Basque. We have this um, university, as I told before. And there is a little a small system, literary system, and uh, concerning to the language also. But there are two split worlds, in, in a way. That's the first step. I write in Basque, but after that, I translate my own work into Spanish. So it's a double work. You, you work, you, you write once your novel and some months later you have to come back over your steps and rewrite or translate or rethink, think it over again and again. So it could be difficult too because you can't uh, get rid of your own ghosts and, and you are all the time with the, with the same book in a way. But if you're writing in a minority language, which Basque is, by definition, to reach a broader audience, which must be very satisfying, you have to, out of necessity, be translated. Mm -hmm. And having some control over your translation at least must provide some sense of security to you mm -hmm. that the integrity of the voice is still there. That's for sure. Um, particular thing, thing about us is that... Um, we translate our work into Spanish ourselves. I mean, uh, Julian Barnes doesn't think about his translations in, in, I don't know, in Russian or German, or he writes in English, and that's it. And some of us, we, we think uh, we have to write uh, the same book twice, in a way. Mm. And is it the same book? Which one is the final work? Maybe the second one you you you, you made same uh, same as mean minor changes. So kind of schizophrenia. Can I ask you about your latest novel, Twist? It's set in the 1980s in the Basque Country. It's a crime thriller, and mm. the theme is quite controversial because it's based on a government killing at mm. the time. Twist is a book based on the kidnapping and killing by uh, Spanish undercover services in the French part of the Basque Country of two Basque military by the ETA, Lassa and Zavala, in the early 80s, really. And they were very young, they were like in, in their 20s. And it was a very shocking case. I was studying law in the 90s when I, uh, we analyzed this uh, case under this uh, law perspective and mm -hmm. ethical perspective mm -hmm. and many different perspectives. So and it was a targeted killing that broke every legal convention. Absolutely, absolutely. And there was a um, sentence many years after because the, uh, the corpses were disappeared and nobody know, knowing where they were. So it was a very harsh uh, situation and, and, and very well-known 
case for a whole generation in the in the Basque Country. And I always had in mind that um, this case deserved a novel. More than 15 years ago, I had this in mind. But how to write about this case? How to to talk about uh, other Spain when many of these victims and the uh, people who killed these two young guys are still alive? And it was very delicate um, situation. So when you deal with somebody else's Spain, you have to be very careful. You have to tiptoe, as you said before, and go there uh, with uh, angel steps. So the way I realized I was able to write this novel was through fiction, okay? I have this real story, reality-based characters. Something happened to these characters, but th these characters really are mm, fictional characters. And th they are like mirrors in which you can see something that really happened, but the characters are invented, I made it up. And how did the family react to those characters and some of the twists that you made within it all? Well, they reacted in, in the in the in the best way possible. Grateful and I, I must say that um, knowing the families and talking to them it is the the best gift I ever had with not only with these books but but uh, in my whole writer career. I said because they speak about their pain without uh, any revenge aims or and for me it, it was a lesson to see that. But I imagine. By writing twist, you got yourself into a lot of political hot water because you're engaging and dialoguing on a very uncomfortable atrocity that took place in Spanish and Basque history. And also, you can't you can't give closure either, but you're driving a, a conversation on that. So how did it go down and how was it received? Well, you can you can say everything is politics or nothing is politics. So... It is the, the same, two different ways to put out the same thing. So my fear with this book was that um, there will be um, some political misunderstandings and interpretation about what I was speaking about. But for my surprise, it was received uh, and criticized in a literary w way. So I'm happy with that. All the criticize was lit based on literature, not based on politics. Now in the Basque Country, I think that we are in the moment, in a moment, where small voices are to be heard, and each particular pain should be told. Mm -hmm. Small stories, just to keep collective memory. Mm -hmm. Later on, first we have to listen to and to t tell these small stories. There is not the time for epics mm. or to mm. bowels mm. from the inside. No, now is the time for psychoanalysis, maybe, <laughs> and not that much politics. And we've seen that trend also within Argentinian literature, and also some terrific short stories coming out of Colombia. Yeah. It is different in some, in, in some points, but there are similarities also between the Argentinian case and the, the scale is different. I mean, in the Basque country, we had uh, in the 80s and 90s well-developed welfare state with um, very high standards in the um, people's everyday, everyday life. 
but suddenly you had this outburst of violence mm. that broke everything. But the everyday life was like any other bourgeois society. Yeah. I mean, and that was anachronistic mm. in, in some way. How would you describe the state of play in the Basque country today? And do you think that, that writers will embrace fresh spaces? Mm. No doubt. I and mean, it's, it's mm. changing mm. fastly. Mm. It's changing extraordinarily mm. fastly. We're living a moment, still big uh, steps are mm. to be made, no mm. doubt. But something is changing rapidly. And there is this risk i guess to forget too easily i mean we blamed the generations of the civil war that lived in their flesh in the civil war that they did not tell us the real story but now maybe we will be to blame because we don't want to for our children to suffer so let's let's let it go. Let's not think about or let's not speak about uh, our pain. And that's the, the danger I see mm. in, nowadays. And that's a very tense balancing act, isn't it? Of course, because you as a particular, mm. you have the right to forget. Mm. But as a society, you cannot do that. Yeah. You have to remember. But what is it to remember? That's what we still don't know. And literature and arts and body art and all these art disciplines are to help in this mm-hmm. catharsis, I guess. Can we talk a little bit about music? Mm-hmm. Because some of your early novels were very music-based. Mm-hmm. And you describe yourself quite charmingly as a frustrated musician. Yeah, I used to play trumpet in a band, but I was forced to quit because I was so bad. They throw me out of the band. But uh, I am... I enjoy music, I love music, um, all kinds of music. I love writing uh, lyrics for um, many songwriters in the Basque Country. And yes, it is. Maybe um, with the the rhythm of jazz and the rhythm of different kinds of music is there in the novels. uh, And it shapes really a structure. When you are listening to jazz while you're writing, your writing changes. The length of the sentences changes. So... There is something about um, music that has very much to do with uh, what you are writing. So you can use different kinds of music in order to get a different uh, way of writing. That's very interesting now. Would you be conscious maybe if you were at a, a difficult junction in a novel or you were frustrated in some way or you couldn't quite piece things together with a character? That certain type of music that if you listen to could maybe transform your imagination in some way or allow you to express yourself differently? Of course, and in in poetry it happens mm. also all the mm. time. I, I like to say that um, my translated works are um, some unplugged versions of the same songs you already played in a studio. So it's the same disc, but sounds differently. Lastly, can I ask you to maybe list five of the best Basque weeds that you can think of for a broad readership, Mm. for anyone who's new to Basque literature? There are not many books translated into English, actually, but uh, the main author is Bernardo Achada, who is translated in many of uh, the majority, all his books have, have been translated since Obaba Coac and uh, Stories from Obaba and the Accordionist Song. It's a great, great uh, uh, writer for our generation. We learned a, a lot. For, for us, it is a classic. 
even though he's still young, he's in his 60s, but he's a living classical. So this is the, one, this is the first one. Kirmen Oribe is another one, a, good, a very good poet with uh, some uh, novels translated too. And I guess that um, there are not much more you can reach easily. There are other um, new voices like Eider Rodriguez. You can read it in, in, in Spanish. Ivan Saldúa also, many others. But they are not translated broadly into English. We are still to be translated. Basque writer, poet and journalist Harkites Canyo. Twist is published in Spanish by Says Barrel and is available in paperback and on Kindle for roughly around 15 euros. Okay, coming up next, the problem of thought and action and the cult of memory with philosopher and author Simon Critchley. But first, let's take a bit of a break. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Okay, if you've missed any of our recent shows, don't worry. They're all up as podcasts on the Talking Books webpage. So all you have to do is go to www.newstalk.com forward slash talking books. And I think there's plenty of chapters to download. News Talk has some very handy apps for iPhone, Android and iPad. So let's now move into a very engaging space where experimental fiction philosophy and memoir meet. Dr. Simon Critchley is an internationally respected scholar of continental philosophy and the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York. His writing is wonderfully thought-provoking, original and eclectic, moving between the realms of philosophy, political theory, religion, ethics, literature and theatre. Yes, he's quite the dynamic thinker. Simon's notable reads include The Ethics of Deconstruction, the Faith of the Faithless, The Hamlet Doctrine, On Humour, Infinitely Demanding, The Book of Dead Philosophers 
and Bowie. Simon is also the series moderator of The Stone, an entertaining philosophy column in the New York Times and a former president of the British Society for Phenomenology. Well, Simon has recently turned his fancy to a bit of experimental fiction with a very big E. Memory Theatre, Simon's debut novel, explores the cult and history of memory, drawing on the writing of Hegel, Giordano Bruno and Francis Yates. The book, I think, is best described as arty fiction meets memoir and essay. And true to form, it's thinking hugely challenging and has plenty of bite. Simon believes there is a sense in which the way we enforce remembrance produces obliteration and says to write at all is to construct some kind of delusional memory theatre which so often leads to becoming like some machine which just produces words, just saying the same thing over and over again. Memory theatre solidly questions the validity of memory and whether memory is just basically repetition. Repetition, yes, all very sobering, indeed. Well, over the weekend, I gave Simon a call at his home in New York and put one big, wide-open question to him. Can we ever separate philosophy from religion? Let's take a listen. Religion asks the right questions but doesn't necessarily give the right answers. That's, that's my view. So the idea that philosophy is something distinct from religion, it's a kind of, I don't know, technical activity done by professional philosophers and religion is in some other place. I think that's a mistake. I think that the, you know, the great religious thinkers have asked the deep searching questions which have always interested me. I just don't think they can be answered with reference to, to God. But the questions are good questions. So for me, you know, philosophy is an activity that you know, takes part, comes out of a tradition of re- religious reflection. So the two things are closely linked. And I think St. Paul and Augustine might think a little differently to you, Simon. They would. And although, you know, I, I mean, for me, what, what turned me on to philosophy very, very early on uh, was Paul's letter to Romans and, to, and Augustine's Confessions. Both those things are really important for me. You know, like in, in Augustine's Confessions, you've got this amazing conversion scene where he, you know, he's in a kind of state of anxiety and this conflict of the two wills he talks about. And then... He hears this voice as of a child and he's transformed. I've always seen that, that act of conversion as the fundamental kind of philosophical moment. It then leads Augustine into a, a different place to the place that I want to be in, but they ask the right questions. And Paul too, I mean, Paul is, Paul is fantastic and, um, and, and real trouble, I think, and, and always trouble for the established church. But no, I, don't, I, I see myself very much in kind of, in a strange kind of continuity with figures like Paul and Augustine. They're on my side for me. But I suppose the main thing there is to ask the big questions, to take those leaps of faith. And that does not necessarily mean that it has to be a conversion of sorts. It can be a rather secular experience. Oh, yeah, it means that you can, I mean, in in Augustine, he's just, the life he's led up to that point, which is a kind of nightclubbing pagan existence, he, he begins to find it vacuous in the same way as we can find a kind of hedonistic life of pleasure vacuous. And he then starts to ask questions through Christianity, um, that becomes his vehicle. But the experience of turning around the self to to face itself and to ask deep and troubling questions of itself, which a lot of, I think, all the great religious thinkers have done, Kierkegaard, Luther, Augustine, Paul, I think that's what philosophy asks us to do as a, as a, as a first step. Otherwise, it's just being clever, it's being smart. And that doesn't really interest me at all because um, there are other people that are probably smarter. Can you talk to me a little bit about the memory theatre? Is it yeah. fair to describe it as experimental fiction meets philosophy? 
Yeah, it, it's hard to describe and it's very hard to talk about. And the, it was published because my friend and my agent really thought it was good and other people thought it was good. And I was kind of holding on to it, didn't know what to do. I did it a few years ago and sat on it. So I sort of, it's, I find it very hard to talk about, not out of any particular modesty, but I sort of look at it and think, you know, what is that? But the best response I've had so far was this. I met this young woman who interviewed me couple of months ago and she said you know it seems to me it's a kind of what you're doing is just trying to you're decomposing you're trying to pull apart the figure of the philosopher you begin with this idea of a heroic philosophical figure that pursues wisdom and whatever and has a, a job teaching philosophy and you show how that um, that disintegrates that's, that's pulled apart and in the book itself there are these images by my friend Liam Gillick the artist who uh, of a building and the, the way the pictures are laid out they're in a kind of negative construction so what you see is a building that begins by being built and ends up as a building site and so it's a kind of undoing of what the philosopher is meant to be someone who is wise and knows how to live so it's it's a kind of self-questioning of, of uh, a lot of what i've tried to do up till now and a lot of what you're meant to do as a philosopher so it's a kind of it's, it's an odd amalgam of you know I, i'd never really written fiction before which is you know a lot of people might think that everything i've done is fiction but you know it's it's the first explicit attempt to really write a story and yeah, and I find it very odd to be able to, to know how to categorize it. It's something between philosophical reflection, memoir, lots of autobiography in there. And it's, it's, it's stuffed full of things that I've read. It's kind of dense, kind of palimpsest of tons of things that I've read that wouldn't necessarily be obvious to anybody other than me. And that, that kind of makes me happy. I've buried a lot of quotations in it. And it certainly is quite the rough guide to some exquisite philosophers, one yeah. being Hegel. From reading some of your other stuff, I got the impression that you're bordering on some areas of memoir in this. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering some of your ardent fans could think this all could be very, very revealing uh, or then just very creative. And where do you get the balance in it all? Because some of the stuff is very raw and very yeah. obscure. Yeah, it is. And it, there's this line in, in Nietzsche in Beyond Good and Evil where he says that all philosophy and all writing is is unconscious memoir. You know, you begin from the idea that, you know, you can't but confess but reveal yourself in, in your writing and you shouldn't try not to, you know, otherwise you then become a kind of parody or a, you present a kind of carapace of this self that you like to present to others. So the book is, you know, I, I use what I know and what I love, but I'm trying to reveal something, that's for sure. It, it is pretty raw and exposed, and there's some odd personal stuff in there, and there's also some uh, some red herrings as well. But I think the red herrings make it a very entertaining read. I certainly, for one, really enjoyed it, and I reread it twice. Oh, that's great. It lends itself to rereading, I must say. It becomes quite humorous. <laughs> yeah, it I'm is, not it, sure yeah. if it's meant to be that way, but on the uh-huh. second reading, I found myself laughing my head off in parts and going, God, this guy's really chancing his arm in this one. But can I ask you, <laughs> Yeats' Art of Memory. How influential was that? I presume it was very influential. Yeah, I mean, I read it when I was 25. Um, I just finished at college. I went to I went to university late, and um, I picked the book up, and um, I just ate it in a you know in in a, in a couple of weeks, and you know it, it then just started. It started me thinking about all these different things, particularly the idea that I mean, basically, that what it meant to be educated until pretty recently 
meant to have a trained memory. That's what it meant to, to be educated. It meant to have a, a, a trained memory where you could look around inside your head, as it were, and visualize things and then bring them to mind in order to make a speech, make a persuasive case or whatever. Another theme I don't talk about in the book, but it's, it's implicit in the book, is that you know, we've decided to outsource memory to the internet. And that, you know, that's a very strange thing to do. We don't really even think about that. But, you know, we, we don't keep as much stuff in our heads as our, as our parents and grandparents. But because we know it's out there somewhere and we can Google it and search it. But that's very odd that we've decided that memory is something we can put in a mechanical archive and we know it's there. But we, our heads are kind of increasingly empty. Whereas what it meant to be educated or reflective or just interesting was to have, you know, fields of memory that you could wander into in order to tell interesting stories or jokes or whatever and the humor thing it is it, meant to be it is to me i mean I, I think it's i think it's funny in a kind of you know rather dark way <laughs> what about total recall and ideas of absolute self because that jumps out yeah it, the idea is that the basic idea of the art of memory which is there in antiquity but it comes up again in a very strong way in, in the renaissance against the the catholic church largely in a figure like uh, Giordano Bruno, who's called the Nolan by Joyce in, in his work. It's the idea that the human being can attain complete knowledge of the universe. We have in our minds access to the cosmos as a whole. And the keys to that are science, uh, experimental science, but also things like astrology, occult wisdom, and all sorts of other things that Bruno was interested in. And this kind of fed the fantasy in Bruno's time and after Bruno's time that we could achieve total recall. We could know the whole thing. And it led to the construction in the um, 17th and 18th century of early kind of mechanical machines, computers effectively, that would allow total recall. Leibniz had plans for this of what would have been for us an early form of computer, which would have allowed total recall. And, um, you know, so what I try and show in the um, in the story is the kind of seductive power that that has, and also um, how not how dangerous that is, but how delusional that is, you know. The, the belief in total recall can lead in a, to a very kind of lonely and uh, isolated place, which is kind of where I place the protagonist in the book. The, the protagonist in the book is called Simon Critchley, and he's mean, he's not mean. It, it, it's a future that I very much want to avoid. It's a future that there's a risk of that in, in stuff that I do, but I really want to avoid that. The fantasy of total recall is the idea of a, a universe that's accessible to me and where at the end of it, you become kind of like Robinson Crusoe, crazy on your desert island with your kind of signs. And this is, it's also what the book is about. It, it, this is a depiction of a universe without love. And that's something I also desperately want to avoid. So the book is kind of, a, it's kind of a, a camera obscura. It's kind of a kind of inverted image of how I'd like things to be. And you call it there, Simon, a very seductive space. I would phrase that rather differently. I mm -hmm. would say it's a very indulgent space to go yeah. into. But then I would put you that by being a philosopher, you have to take those risks, you have to think big, and you have to explore life in so many different ways. And sometimes by exploring life, we take ourselves into very strange spaces. Yes, a very important book for me very early on was Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, which is, you know, this is, there's one important philosophical question, which is whether life is or is not worth living. And those are the stakes. The stakes have to be that high. And philosophy for me is an, an existential 
activity which tries to deal with the questions of the highest importance and to follow those things through you you do pay a price there's no question about that i mean we had this kind of you know not fanciful idea but the idea that for example i'm reading virginia wolf at the moment i'm reading to the lighthouse because i'm close to the sea and you read virginia wolf and you see you know how what she's able to do with prose and move sentences around with character and the rhythm of the prose and all of that but you know it, obviously she paid a very high price for that in terms of her, her sensibility and ultimately of, of her life the idea is that good work requires you know that kind of investment otherwise we're just kind of uh, fiddling around and that's i've never thought that's good enough really philosophy has to be to, to begin with and not just philosophy i think you know everything that we do should be infused with a sense of real commitment and 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 to be driven to ask these questions because these are questions which we which are hugely important to us and to and to deal with those questions does require a kind of a change in the way one li- lives one life one's life it can be more difficult at times but i think it's worth the effort and Jack Derrida pops up through the character that you have of Michael. He's a very, mm. he was a very divisive figure. Yeah. But possibly he paid a huge price for asking the questions that he asked. What people didn't like about Derrida was that he was, he was brilliant, he was loquacious, but he was also handsome and extremely well dressed. And, and he was, you know, he was... He Edgy, I think you're trying to say. He was, he was, yeah, he was, he was, he, he tended to, he was divisive, but he, he inspired a lot of jealousy, let's just say that. I, I knew him fairly well, you know, when I was a graduate student and in the, in the, in the early part of my career. And I've never been as close to anybody that intelligent. It was kind of frightening. It was like being next to a light bulb when he was improvising and he was really trying to think something through. He had a kind of a strangely brilliant intelligence. And I mean, that kind of thing is going to make people hate you, right? <laughs> <laughs> and what about Heidegger, though? He was an, another figure, extremely influential, towering mm-hmm. figure in philosophy, but also demonised in ways. The, in, in terms of the community is split between those who praise him and those who abhor him. Yeah, I mean, uh, Heidegger is a very divisive figure because of his political commitment to national socialism, which is often used as an excuse not to read his work seriously. I'm going to spend next semester teaching Heidegger's Being in Time, probably the semester after that as well. You know, we'll do every word on the page and the whole the whole book, and you know, and try and go through that really, really carefully. I think it's a hugely important piece of work. He was also politically incredibly uh, naive, vain, and stupid. And what's interesting about Heidegger is that these two things are true. On the one hand, he was the most influential philosopher of the 20th century for someone like me, and he was um, he was a Nazi. And how we square those two things, I think, asks a really important set of questions about the relationship between philosophy and politics. But the question of why figures like Heidegger and Derrida are divisive is because there is this division in philosophy itself, largely professional division between people that do what's called analytic philosophy, Anglo-American philosophy, and people that do continental philosophy. You find this in Ireland in a very very obvious way in the um, distinction. It's, It's less so now, but say 20 years ago, between someone like University College Dublin and Trinity, where UCD would have been doing continental philosophy, phenomenology and all that stuff. And Trinity would have been doing analytic philosophy, Anglo-American philosophy. And obviously, there is a religious dimension to that and a colonial dimension to that as well. So 
these questions about figures who are divisive are never, it's never just a kind of philosophical issue. It's also a kind of cultural and historical issue, which we continue to struggle with. But life is a contradiction. You may not like Heidegger's views on Nazism. He was an original thinker. You may find some of the great philosophers way too religious in how they frame their questions and how they frame their debates. Mm-hmm. But they are original. And you have to be realistic. We are all human. And by being human, we have prejudices. Yeah, I think why the history of philosophy is worth studying from from the Greeks onward is that it presents a series of completely coherent views of the world, which are you can argue for and which have a great plausibility and, and huge seductive power. And they're contradictory. You know, they contradict each other. So if you look at, say, I don't know, 17th century philosophy, you've got a figure like Descartes. And he argues for a distinction between mind and body, two forms of substance, thinking things and extended things. And it, he makes a very good argument for that. And then Spinoza, 30 years later, completely abolishes that. There's just one substance, he calls it God or nature. And to do the history of philosophy seriously is to be faced with these kind of seductive uh, visions which are coherent and yet amongst themselves contradict each other. And th- I think that allows a mind, a, a young mind that, that's reading or not a not-so-young mind that's reading, to just learn to accept the fact that there are coherent but contradictory accounts of reality, that in a sense we, we, we bump against absolute presuppositions which, uh, which contradict each other. And to accept that is, is a good thing. To say these people are wrong or they're evil because they believe that is, is a bad thing. To, to do. So I think philosophy can, in its kind of variety, can allow for a certain tolerance, a certain play, I like to think. I think that's a very relevant point. And mm-hmm. without sounding like a total knobber, if we sit spaciously with those big philosophical questions and the, the ideas that, that are put out by some of the great religious philosophers or the political philosophers, that we can learn a lot about life, but also learn a lot about ourselves. Yeah, we learn a lot about life, a lot about ourselves, and we can learn a lot about people who we respect and whose intelligence we admire and with whom we fundamentally disagree. So, you know, there's a great British Anglo-Irish philosopher called uh, Alastair MacIntyre, who taught at Notre Dame for many at many years, and uh, I taught at Notre Dame as well and watched Alastair. I'd read him for about twenty years prior to that. I mean, he's someone that can argue for a Orthodox Catholic position in a way that is completely persuasive with which I profoundly disagree, right, at every level. But part of what it means to do philosophy is to see the inherent plausibility of, of a mind like that trying to work through a difficult series of arguments and, and, to, and to accept that, to tolerate that, and not to um, immediately run to a conclusion, this is, this is wrong or this person is deluded. I think philosophy allows this, yeah, this, this play of toleration, which we could do with a lot more, I think, in relationship to our experience of the world at the present time. I think it'd be a rather good thing. And there's a beauty to that, I think, Simon, in terms of as a practice. Can I ask you, at the end of the book, the last few pages are particularly moving and very revealing. And you pose a very interesting question and you say, we do not make ourselves, we cannot Mm -hmm. remake ourselves through memory. Yeah, the the idea is that you know there is a there's a, there's a view that we we make ourselves that we're sovereign over ourselves that each man is an island or 
whatever, and, and we're not. We're made and unmade by our relationships to other people. The protagonist in Memory Theatre is someone who's very much alone and mad in, uh, in his aloneness and doesn't really accept that fact. My position would be, well, Judith Butler puts it beautifully in a little phrase where she says, uh, we're undone by each other. We're undone by each other. And if we don't, we're missing something. For me, that's, that's the key thing. And that, that's what it also means to be in a relationship of, of friendship or of love with someone is to, to accept that one is delighted by someone, one is, well, experiences pleasure in relation to someone, but one is also undone by them, continually surprised by them, outflanked by them. And there's a kind of play of toleration in that too. You know, if, if love isn't that, it becomes a kind of control and uh, obsessiveness, and that's, that's really awful. So, so there's a kind of, you know, accepting that we do not make ourselves, I think, is a, a finally kind of, you know, hopefully kind of sort of relaxing insight. It might allow us to kind of relax and open up and distend a little bit and allow, allow other things in and other things to happen. That would be a good thing too, in my view.
and that was writer and philosopher Simon Critchley. Memory Theatre is published by Fitzcarraldo Editions and retails at about €12. I have to say, Simon's fictional debut is one fascinating read and enjoyably crazy. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week, Talking Books is dedicated to the life and literary legacy of iconic American short story writer and poet Raymond Carver. The music today comes from John Lambert and Sophie Hutchins. I hope you enjoyed them. Now, before I go, I just want to flag a very interesting writing course taking place in the Irish Writer Centre in association with Books Ireland. It's Arts Reviews, Interviews and Analysis with Nadine O'Regan. The course starts on Wednesday the 11th of February and continues for eight weeks. So it might be of interest for some of you listening. OK, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end the show with some intriguing words from the real, or not so real, Simon Critchley, who concludes, in memory theatre, we do not make ourselves, we cannot remake ourselves through memory. Such was a fallacy driving my memory theatre. We are not self-constituting beings. We are constituted through the vast movement of history, of which we are largely quiescent effects, sundry epiphenomena, symptoms of a millennia-long malaise whose cause escapes us. Talking Books on News 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.